2: Good evening, I'm Scott Wapner. On day 135 of the coronavirus crisis, Dr. Anthony Fauci takes center stage
3: on Capitol Hill with a warning for the nation. When you talk about will this virus just disappear, and as I've said publicly many times, that is just not going to happen.
4: Dr. Fauci testifies before Congress. Warning, this crisis isn't over. We thought initially that it didn't affect children plus new fears over just how vulnerable children may be and stocks have fallen through the session stocks steady throughout the day collapse late in the afternoon
1: i was just shocked because i thought the advertisement was middle seats are blocked
4: and flight attendants warn of serious safety concerns in the sky this cnbc special report begins right now here's scott wapner
2: And welcome. Good to have you with us on this Tuesday night following a late day sell off. Let's get our first look at futures this evening. It is early, but they are lower across the board. As you see right there comes after a sharp drop in stocks today as investors took a step back to evaluate where we stand with the reopening of the economy. The Dow dropping more than 450 points, the S&P 500 and Nasdaq off 2 percent. We'll have more on that coming up in just a bit. Our other big story tonight, though, Dr. Anthony Fauci testifying about the virus before a Senate committee starting off with a warning about opening the country too soon.
3: The consequences could be uh, uh, really uh, serious, uh, particularly, and this is something that I think we also should pay attention to that states, even if they're doing it at an appropriate pace, which many of them are and will, namely a pace that's commensurate with the dynamics of the outbreak, that they have in place already the capability that when there will be cases, it's the ability and the capability of responding to those cases with good identification, isolation, and contact tracing will determine whether you can continue to go forward. And if you think that we have it completely under control, we don't. The curve looks flat with some slight coming down. So I think we're going in the right direction. But the right direction does not mean we have by any means total control of this outbreak. Most of us feel that the number of deaths are likely higher than that number because given the situation, particularly in New York City, when they were really strapped with a very serious Challenge to their healthcare system, that there may have been people who died at home, who did have COVID, who were not counted as COVID because they never really got to the hospital. The idea of having treatments available or a vaccine to facilitate the reentry of students into the fall term would be something that would be a bit of a bridge too far. If this were a situation where we had a vaccine, That would really be the end of that issue in a positive way. But as I mentioned in my opening remarks, even at the top speed we're going, we don't see a vaccine playing in the ability of individuals to get back to school this term. What they really want is to know if they are safe.
2: Let's bring in now the CNBC contributor, the former head of the FDA, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He, by the way, speaks to members of Congress tomorrow. Dr. Gottlieb, good evening to you. Good evening. We'll get to your testimony in just a minute. But let's reflect on what Dr. Fauci had to say to the nation today. Pretty stark warning. Death toll almost certainly higher than we think it is. And also opening too soon could bring what he called, quote, a real risk. You will trigger an outbreak that you will not be able to control. What's your reaction to what Dr. Fauci said today?
5: Yeah, well, look, we know cases are going to go up as we reopen the nation. Um, I think the challenge right now is we're, we're reopening the nation against a backdrop of more spread than what we figured we would have at this stage. We're really faced with bad options here. There aren't any good options. One is to keep the economy closed for a longer period of time with all the hardship that that's bringing, including public health consequences. People missing vaccinations, missing routine primary care, not following up for chemotherapy visits. We're now seeing the public health data of the consequences of the shutdown and the other bad decision is opening up against the backdrop of spread in a setting where you know cases are going to go up. And the risk is that we continue to have this slow simmer of infection through the summer. We might have outbreaks again. We might have growth in cases and, and another large epidemic. I don't think that's going to happen in the summertime. I think the more likely consequence is that we open up against the backdrop of spread. We continue to have this simmer of spread. We really don't get the cases down. And then as we head into the fall, we face a lot of risk that at that point we're going to have an explosion in cases. And so these are really difficult choices that policymakers are faced with. There aren't any good choices here. Because
2: many states, Dr. Gottlieb, are opening Without meeting the federal guidelines, or at least the White House's guidelines, as you just said, right, cases in in many places that are opening up are still on the increase. That's right. The
5: guidelines specify that you want to see a sustained reduction in new cases for around two weeks. There's maybe 10 10 states that meet that criteria, probably a little fewer than that. Look, there are ways to reopen more safely. Um, If you have in place what Dr. Fauci talked about, the track and trace ability, the ability to do the case-based interventions, try to identify the cases so you have good testing in place. States are getting better testing in place now. But then have public health workers that will track down people who are infected, encourage them to self-isolate so they don't continue to spread the infection and try to trace their sick contacts and then get those people tested as well. You're never going to catch all the cases. This is a very contagious infection. It's going to move more quickly than your public health workers can. But even if you can catch a fraction of the cases, even if you can get 15 or 20 percent, which would be a lot. That might be enough to prevent this from becoming epidemic again. The goal is to keep the R, the reproduction rate, under 1 so that the epidemic's contracting and not expanding. When you look across the nation right now and you look at the data, the R is about 1.1, meaning we do have an expanding epidemic nationally, and the doubling time is about 45 days. That's a big improvement from where we were. About two, three weeks ago, we were about 25 days. And at the outset of this, we were around
2: three or four days. So we're showing improvement. The epidemic's slowing. But it's not contracting. There was news early this evening that L.A. County, Los Angeles County, will stay at home until July at least. What's your reaction to that? Right decision?
5: Look, I think we've made the right decision in leaving, deci- leaving these judgments up to governors and local officials who can react to the conditions on the ground, as well as you know, the risks in their population, the density of their cities, the resources they have available to them. So the administration, by and large, has left this to local officials to manage these kinds of decisions. But we need to recognize there's bad consequences on both sides of this equation. If we open a little too soon and we see a growth in cases, that could put us in a situation where we head into a fall with a lot greater risk. But if we keep the economy shut, there's economic hardship, but then there's direct public health consequences from that economic hardship. You'll see more deaths of despair. Um, we'll see addiction rates go up. We're seeing people miss uh, important health care. We're seeing vaccination rates go down significantly. So we can't discount. Those public health consequences. These are tough decisions that governors have to make right now. I think the best we can do is if we're going to start reopening the economy, do it slowly so that we can judge the impact of our decisions and do it with the right tools in place. Get in be- place the best screening you can, and now we're limited in what we can get in place in terms of testing, but do the best you can. But we can lean very heavily on what Dr. Fauci talked about, which is the public health work of tracking down. Sick individuals trying to isolate them, trying to track their sick contacts. That is important public health work, and that could have an impact here.
2: What do you make of the back and forth between Senator Paul, Senator Rand Paul, and and Dr. Fauci? There are many people, Dr. Gottlieb, we've heard their voices, who agree with Senator Paul's view that there won't be a surge, that it's time to open up this economy, and it's not going to be as bad as Dr. Fauci and others are warning it may be. What do you make of that? Well, the only reason why we might not see
5: a big surge in cases is if you believe that there's a a heavy seasonal impact from this virus. We know coronaviruses are seasonal. We know they won't circulate as efficiently in the summertime. We're not quite in the summer yet. Um, I think in July and August, you will see a seasonal effect. We will see cases start to um, break down, change the transmission, break down from the heat and the humidity and the fact that epidemiology spread changes in the summer. But we really can't bank on that. Um, I happen to believe that there will be a strong seasonal effect here, but probably not enough to fully offset the impact of the reopening right now. I mean, at best, maybe it will balance it out, but probably we're going to see an expansion in cases in May and heading into June. And then hopefully in July and August, you start to see that seasonal effect impact spread, and we do start to see chains of transmission break off a little bit. That's what we saw in 2009 with H1N1, the swine flu, where it was epidemic into June and then broke off in July. Hopefully the same thing happens here. Otherwise, I don't know what the rationale would be to believe that this is just going to magically disappear. I think the rationale would be that you think the summer is going to have an
2: impact. We're thinking about the way that companies are going to reopen The CDC document we discussed last week, Dr. Gottlieb, the one that apparently the White House did not want the CDC to release. Is that ever going to come out? Are we going to see those guidelines that the CDC was trying to advise the country on? I would actually expect to see that in days. I
5: think that that document's going to come out. It's going to give prescriptive guidance to especially businesses on how to safely reopen um, and be specific to different kinds of business segments. It's an absolute pivotal document to have that out. Um, Businesses will actually not be able to open in the absence of that guidance. And so I think it's important it comes out. I think it's going to come out based on my understanding that
2: document will be out perhaps in a matter of days. You were part of our Healthy Returns uh, event today, our virtual event. Um, You said we're only in the second inning. That's not going to feel very comforting to a lot of people this evening. Dr. Gottlieb, is that what you are going to tell Congress tomorrow when you testify? Well, these are early days in this uh, in this
5: virus and dealing with this epidemic. That doesn't mean the fifth, sixth and seventh inning needs to look as bad as the first and the second inning did. Um, But the reality is that we're going to be dealing with this for a long time. This virus probably will settle into a seasonal um, type of component, a seasonal type of pattern. It's going to come back in the fall. It's going to collide with flu season. That presents a lot of new risks. Um, And then we're going to have to contend with it through the winter and into another spring. We're not going to have a vaccine probably well into 2021 we should have it available in the fall to deploy uh, experimentally and maybe to try to ring fence an outbreak, but we're not going to have a vaccine that we can mass deploy to actually quell an epidemic. The reality is that As the virus continues to spread, more and more people are getting it, and we are going to develop at some point herd immunity. So if you think that the virus just continues on its current course through September, till September, that we still have the same number of cases that we have now all the way to September 1st. At that point, 15% of the American population will have had coronavirus. And so this is growing. Um, This is expanding. And the question is, what do we get to
2: first, a vaccine or herd immunity? We're thinking about summer activities. We're thinking about Summer camps and there are some who are even talking about whether school will start on time in the fall. And I'm wondering how we're supposed to think tonight about this increasing number of kids, of children who are being impacted and affected by a disease and the after effects of which we don't know a whole lot about. Are we learning anything new, Dr. Gottlieb, about what's impacting our children? We're learning more
5: about the syndrome. It looks like some kind of post-viral effect, post-viral inflammatory effect or autoimmune effect. We do see that with other viruses, Coxsackie, flu. We do see in a very low number of kids these kinds of post-viral types of conditions. But in those cases, you know, you have literally millions of kids infected or affected by those viruses every year, and a very small number of them have these long-term outcomes. The question here is how many kids are getting coronavirus? There was a study in Science magazine about two weeks ago That said, kids have about a third of the susceptibility to this virus as adults. So they're getting infected, but they're not getting uh, very sick from it. So they're subclinical. They're not being identified. And they're not getting infected at the same rate. But we really don't know. NIH is undertaking a study now to answer this question. But to look at just the morbidity and mortality in New York City among children, for children between the age of newborns to 17, there were 300 hospitalizations and nine tragic deaths. To put that in comparison to the flu, there were 174 deaths from flu for children under the age of 17 in in a seasonal year, in a seasonal flu pattern. Um, And so the question is, how many kids are getting coronavirus? I think the balance of the information tips in the direction of thinking that kids are getting the infection, they're just not getting very sick when they have the virus. And so these cases that we're seeing of these unusual constellation of symptoms post-viral Um, probably sit on top of a big denominator.
2: Um, But we don't know the answer to that question. So this is speculation right now. Scary nonetheless. Dr. Gottlieb, as always, thanks so much for your time this evening. Thanks a lot. All right. We'll be following your testimony tomorrow on Capitol Hill. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Dr. Fauci's statements to Congress, just one of the headlines that sent stocks lower today. Let's bring in now Mike Santoli on the late day stock drop. And, Mike, it was a late day drop, a little air pocket perhaps that stocks found. What are we to make of that for the, the way stocks set up from here now?
1: Well, a few things, Scott. For one thing, the the context is important. We've been up in this area for about three weeks. Uh, The S&P 500 struggling to make a new high uh, beyond its April 30th high. And the only reason really the index had been holding in there was the very large growth stocks, mostly the big Nasdaq tech stocks. Uh, They gave way in the afternoon. I don't really think you can tie their reversal to a particular headline, although Dr. Fauci's testimony, as well as the, the news item that Los Angeles County is talking about extending uh, their stay-in-place orders for a few months, seem to reorient people's focus toward the potential risks of a slower uh, restart. I do think the technical setup and the really weak supply demand for the average stock out there was to blame to some degree for the heaviness of this market. The question of what happens now you know, you look at a chart, it seems like the market just bumped up against the top end of a range and is going to have to sort things out here. Uh, a lot of the cyclically sensitive areas of this market have been weak for some time, as we all know, right? The banks, uh, auto stocks, industrials have not been leading the way. So they have not really been handicapping uh, a very quick reversal of this economy to the upside. But where does that leave us if the, the big growth stocks and the big health care stocks uh, are not going to insulate the, uh, the indexes? That, I think, is the question right now.
2: The famed investor Stanley Druckenmiller said uh, late this afternoon, uh, Mike, that it was the worst risk reward uh, for stocks in some time. I'm guessing he's not the only big time money manager feeling that way, given the run that we've had and all of the uncertainty that still exists within the economy and surrounding this virus.
1: No, he's, he's definitely not alone. In fact, I think he said it might be the worst risk reward setup of his career, which goes back more than 40 years. And that's a little bit of an alarming statement if, if that's the case. He was trading through the 87 crash in 2000, 2008. Whether that's true or not, I do think it's a widely shared view. Uh, there seems to be a little bit of a mismatch in terms of the fairly contained damage to the overall stock market versus the reality that we see outside uh, in the economy all the time. Again, it hasn't been the parts of the stock market that would be racing ahead in a strong economy that are leading the way. Uh, but even at that, it's hard to know exactly how much even those secular growth stocks can, uh, can hang things together. Now, the other thing I think people should keep in mind is when you do have awful employment results, as we've had, and then it starts to get a little bit better, and when you have a deeply negative GDP print, as we did in the first quarter, we're likely to have now, and then they get better, that's actually when stocks tend to try to handicap uh, a turn for the better. It's not that unusual to see this mismatch in timing between when stocks try to sniff out some better times and when uh, the economy delivers it. But uh, there's certainly no guarantees that the market has it right.
2: Here. See where we go from here. Mike Santoli, thank you. See you tomorrow. All right. Breaking news tonight on casinos in the southern United States. Contessa Brewer now live with the very latest for us. Hi, Contessa.
0: Hi there, Scott. Yeah, the casino industry in Louisiana is pushing back against Louisiana's governor, who said that they could open Friday, but with capacity set at 25%. The casino association in Louisiana says, look, about half of our riverboats and racinos won't be able to make a profit if their capacity is 25%. They have an awful lot of tiny casinos there. And in New Orleans, the city has said Our gaming facilities will not reopen, so that's a no-go for Harris Across the border in Mississippi, the expectation was that the governor today in his news conference would clear the path for casinos to reopen. Previously, he had said by Memorial Day, Today, he walked that back. He did not put a date on it. I talked to MGM CEO Bill Hornbuckle today, Scott, and he told me he was expecting the announcement and that they were going to put their own capacity limits in place in Tunica, the first one that they would reopen, at 25 to 30 percent. These openings or the remaining closures affect companies like MGM, they affect Caesars, Penn, Boyd and El Dorado. And everyone is eager to get those places back up and running, but in a way that makes sense, because if you're bringing people back to work, you've got to pay them. You've got to be making enough money not to increase your cash burn, Scott.
2: going to be interesting to follow. Contessa, thank you. That's Contessa Brewer reporting with that breaking news tonight. By the way, another big story tonight, House Democrats unveiling a new $3 trillion coronavirus relief package with plans to bring it to a vote this coming Friday. Our Kayla Tausche tracking that for us tonight. Hi, Kayla.
6: Hi, Scott. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi urged her party to think big about what the economy needs, especially with interest rates so low. And it's against that backdrop that today House Democrats unveiled an aid package of historic proportion, bigger even than the $2.2 trillion CARES Act that passed in March. The $3 trillion HEROES Act, as this iteration is called, would send $1 trillion to state and local governments, $175 billion to hospitals, $100 billion to schools schools and universities, and $75 billion for homeowners, among other things. Now, this package will not pass the Senate. But tonight, the House Speaker told Jim Cramer on Mad Money this is her opening volley.
0: This is a negotiation. We think this is what is necessary to meet the needs of the American people. All of these provisions have had a provenance in our former four bills that passed in a bipartisan way all of them are supported by Democrats and Republicans across the country.
6: On the other side of the aisle and the Capitol for his part, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says this package will not be a blank check.
4: Look, I mean, we can't spend enough money uh, to prop this economy up forever. Uh, People need to be able to begin to be productive again.
6: The White House officials acknowledge that the Democratic House passing this bill on Friday would add new urgency toward bipartisan talks to reach an agreement on some future stimulus. But as one administration told me, this package is viewed as a hummingbird doing little but make noise. Scott?
2: Dealing with a lot of large numbers these days, Kayla, and now some pushback. We're hearing about the deficit as well.
6: The Treasury Department's got today out with some new numbers on the deficit, showing that for the last 12 months up until April, the U.S. recorded a $1.9 trillion budget deficit. That is a record. In April, for that month alone, the deficit was more than $700 billion. The reason for that is a delay in the tax filing deadline to July. Normally, Treasury records a surplus in the month where it gets those tax revenues from Americans and businesses who are filing. But I'm told that the the White House and the Treasury Department are discussing an even further delay to the tax filing deadline beyond July as just one measure that could keep stimulating the economy. Scott?
2: Just stunning numbers, Kayla. Thank you, Kayla Tausch, reporting from Washington, D.C. for us tonight. There is a lot more ahead on this CNBC special report.
4: Next tonight, what the flight attendants are saying about airplanes at full capacity. Is this what they expected? Their message for airline executives next. Plus, how we'll know when this pandemic is over? A medical historian on what he's learned from previous crises. Before the break, images from around the country on the 135th day of this global pandemic.
2: Welcome back on day 135 of this crisis. Here are more headlines on the virus this evening. Offices in California can reopen if safety precautions are followed. Malls can open for curbside pickup and restaurants in some parts of the state. Will be open for customers to dine in. As Americans stock up on groceries, prices at supermarkets jumped more than 2.5% in April. That is the biggest one-month jump in nearly 50 years. Meat, fish, and eggs rose the most, 4%. And say it ain't so. Broadway theaters will remain dark until at least Labor Day. Well, the head of the major flight attendants union tonight is calling for essential travel only to avoid full flights. With us now is Sarah Nelson, international president of the Association of Flight Attendants. Ms. Nelson, it's nice to have you tonight. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Um, I think everybody is uh, reacting to that one photo uh, from a flight that was packed. You saw everybody, every seat full, everybody wearing a mask. But what was your reaction to what is a photo we're showing to our viewers right now from a packed flight?
7: Well, look, we've got this healthcare care crisis uh, colliding with the financial crisis. And the truth is that air travel demand uh, dropped to just three percent in April. And that was on the heels of uh, the Trump administration saying avoid uh, air travel if you can. So this was a message really from the public health officials and from a postcard that I got from President Trump himself at my home. Um, but everybody understood that air travel was a place where the coronavirus could be spread. And it's very hard to um, keep that so- social distancing and have the ability to not uh, continue the spread of the virus. And so we saw a travel demand uh, just drop uh, through the floor. And because of that, there was no one on the planes. Well, now we've pulled down the planes now we're starting to see a little bit of demand tick up, but still only 10 percent of the travel that was in place before. So in order to make this safe and ensure that we have public confidence in air travel, because we need that in order to be able to come back and come back with air travel uh, with full demand, is we've got to have safety procedures in place, just like we do for other areas of aviation. So we've got to have masks. We've got to have social distancing policies. We've got to communicate and have in place clear, uh, deep cleaning policies so that people can be sure that if they're buying a ticket, they are not aiding the spread of the virus. They're not possibly contracting it themselves. And they can have confidence and come back to, to air travel when it's safe.
2: Surprised by that picture? Angered by it? What, what, what is your reaction to the, to the photo itself?
7: The problem with this is that people were told that they were going to come on an airplane and there would be an empty seat next to them. That's what they were told by the airline. They, told, they were told that there was a social distancing policy in place that would assure that. And then they got on board. And these were essential workers. These were people who had been in hospitals fighting coronavirus and actually saying that they were more concerned about Uh, the risk to their lives and the risk to contracting coronavirus than they were in the hospitals that they were working in. So we cannot have people expecting one thing and getting another. And we can't have the situation where people are saying that it's unsafe to travel. So we've got to work with the government. We really need DOT to be putting in place clear policies pull together a task force with both industry people on the front lines. This is what would normally be happening to put in place safety policies that ensure that people can be assured that they are safe when they travel and the people that I work with and I represent. Flight attendants who are on the front lines, essential workers, are not going to work and putting their lives at risk by doing so, but actually doing what we are charged to do, which is ensure the safety, health and security of the passengers who are in our care.
2: How is your membership doing right now, given that capacity is down so much that hardly anyone is flying?
7: Uh, This is a real concern. We, uh, thank goodness, got the payroll grants through the CARES Act, uh, to keep in place funding that keeps our jobs until September 30th, but we have big concerns, and people are also really having a hard time because we are used to working overtime hours to make it, to meet the needs of our bills. I will just note, though, that the picture of the person behind me is Paul Frischkorn. He was the first flight attendant to die, and we've had eight flight attendants die. Um, In the course of this pandemic and we have had many others who are very sick in the hospital. This is a horrible disease and it's horrible to go through it and no one should have to uh, face the risk by buying an airplane ticket and so we've got to remove the risk so that we can actually make sure that we have a secure future and we have the ability to continue the industry and to support the two million jobs that depend on aviation and all of our economy that depends on a strong aviation system. It's all connected.
2: Speaking of, of jobs, the CEO of Boeing on the Today Show was asked about a major airline going out of business, and he said yes when asked if he thought one would. I'm wondering what your reaction is to that comment from Mr. Calhoun today.
7: Well, that was um, just really thoughtless on his part and uh, actually a little bit mean-spirited, I would say, both for the workers in aviation, uh, his customers who actually buy his planes. That's who he's talking about. And uh, pretty darn clunky and and really... Uh, really mean-spirited, actually, for the people who are on the front lines right now trying to make this work, trying desperately to hold our industry together, and understanding that if there's additional consolidation, we're going to get to a point, uh, like Boeing was, with two big to fail. And we're going to make bad decisions when that happens, including shrinking seat sizes more, squeezing people together, and all of the things that consumers have not liked about the consolidation in the airline industry. So I would say that he owes us all an apology.
2: We'll see what happens in the days ahead. Sarah, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. That's Sarah Nelson joining us this evening. There is more ahead tonight on this special report.
4: How can you tell when a pandemic is over? Medical historians study this kind of thing and have answers. We're talking to one next. Plus, how America's daycare centers will welcome children and nervous parents when they reopen. Details on what this very important link in the economic chain is doing next. This CNBC special report is coming right back.
5: No manufacturers can make enough doses for the planet.
4: Tonight, the CEOs of pharma and biotech companies tell us where they stand in the depths of this crisis. Plus, for many parents, there's no choice. Daycare centers must open so they can go back to work. Tonight, how to ensure the safety of all those children. This CNBC special report continues now. Once again, here's Scott Wapner.
2: And we welcome you back after stocks sold off and the Nasdaq snapped a six-day winning streak. Let's get you another check on the futures. We began our program tonight. They were lower, and it's currently where we are now across the board in the red. Today, the Dow dropped more than 450 points. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq each off 2%. Caterpillar, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Disney, and Nike all dragging the Dow lower today with about 3% losses there. Well, the biggest names in healthcare gathering online for CNBC's Healthy Returns virtual summit today. They drew a path forward as to what's next in the battle against the coronavirus.
0: I'm most hopeful that we'll find antivirals fast. Um, I think the prospects for a vaccine are an area where we should be optimistic, but the timeline is challenging. And herd immunity will eventually happen one way or another, but I hope and pray that that
9: isn't what we have to resort to. The level of cooperation between our companies in the industry, uh, it's really unprecedented.
5: No manufacturers can make enough doses for the planet. And so what is going to happen, uh, I believe, and we are starting to have discussions with, for example, the U.S. government about it, which is How do we provide access? How do you prioritize? And we believe this is not a company decision.
3: The distribution aspect in the United States, the physical distribution, I think is more than adequate. I do think that there will be a capacity issue. Like Stefan, we're not the only people who are trying to make an antibody cocktail.
8: From day one, what I said to our people was that we need to think beyond return on investment. It's not a variable at all. All we need to think it is return on effort. One thing is for certain. One, there will be no American or that cannot get it or European that cannot get it when it is available. And because of price, that will be clearly the guideline.
2: If you did miss today's event, you can catch the rebroadcast of CNBC's Healthy Returns Virtual Summit online Thursday, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Head to CNBC's Facebook page, YouTube or, of course, CNBC Com. Nobody, of course, knows when this all ends, but history can perhaps tell us how previous pandemics have finished, what it means for this one. Dr. Jeremy Green is the director of the Institute of the History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University, joins us live tonight. Dr. Green, welcome.
10: Uh, thanks for having me here today. Hard
2: to think about the end when Dr. Gottlieb just told me uh, we're, we're in the second inning, but what guide can history be for us as we think about that day?
10: Well, I'll start out by saying we seem to have a substantial lag here, which uh, is perhaps fitting for a historian, given that we're used to living in the past. Uh, But I can tell you that as a historian and as a physician treating COVID patients, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm I'm not a futurologist. And yet there are important things that we can do looking back at the history of past epidemics to understand the many different ways that epidemics, even terrible epidemics like the present, uh, can come to an end. Um, the different kinds of ends that exist. And uh, there's a saying attributed to Mark Twain that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And what we've been doing, a, a number of us historians of medicine have been trying to understand what practical knowledge we could put to the present day from past epidemics.
2: It's interesting. In your notes, you talk about the, the issue of there being both a biological epidemic, like we're dealing, one, and dealing with it, and also a social epidemic. The end of one doesn't necessarily mean
10: the end of the other, does it? Yes, thanks for bringing up that question. I think it's a crucial point. you know, really, disease is always simultaneously biological and social, and it's hard to tease apart the two aspects of an epidemic, but it's important to pay attention to it. If we think about the biological face of an epidemic, we think about the agent in particular, its mode of transmission, uh, how it reproduces, uh, what, what, its, what its rate of, uh, of reproduction is, how it moves through a community of people, and the different kind of uh, effects it has on the body and what kinds of treatments and preventive me- measures are available for it. When we think about the social basis of an epidemic we think about our responses to it the ways in which the this very strange moment we're living in in which our daily life has been substantially disrupted our you know here we are uh, shuttering most of our public institutions um you know sheltering in place uh reducing you know t- taking everyday uh, uh gestures like like shaking hands or even approaching someone on the street and 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 turning them on their heads and so This social epidemic is um, in some ways has features that can be seen in common across past epidemics with very different biological agents. What I wanna point out here is that the timing of them can actually uh, differ and that the differences can be really significant. On the one hand, if you think about the the biological epidemic that we are living through here in North America, we now know that the first cases of COVID in, in, in the United States were actually well spread through the community much earlier than we believed so that they preceded in many ways the social experience of the epidemic domestically here in the United States. Um, at the same time, there's a real danger to uh, the, the relaxing of our social responses to the epidemic. We're seeing a lot of quarantine fatigue that people are going through right now. So what happens if we lift and relax and, and forget about the importance of our public health responses uh, in a moment in which the uh, disease is still being transmitted very actively to the community. So that actually this disjuncture in the time curve of the biological and social epidemics can be very, very dangerous for us. Very tough balance uh, mental health issues
2: that need to be considered, um, obviously, as well. We spent a lot of time here talking about what the quote unquote new normal uh, may be. And I'm wondering whether life effort does really return to to a normal. What, what history tells us about that as we look back at prior epidemics and pandemics and what the normal
10: uh, really is on the other side? I think one of the things that uh, the study of history gives us is a sense that the normal or the everyday aspect of our life is something that is actually very dynamic. And um, uh, what we assume, a lot of things we take for granted as just aspects of how our society works are actually quite malleable and mobile. And we see this uh, in times of epidemics. We see tremendous reorderings of social lives. And we see ways in which the world that is put together after an epidemic often looks different than the world that came before, although it becomes accepted as that new normal. So we can look at this in some specific ways. Uh, You know, if you look in the 20th century, uh, the, the, uh, the, the AIDS epidemic and the HIV pandemic, which in many ways, we, are, of course, are still looking, are still living through. And I'd come back if we have a moment to talk about this question of what happens to AIDS as an epidemic disease versus an endemic disease. But AIDS, uh, the world after AIDS involves universal precautions in healthcare. For example, the regular use of gloves, hand washing, contact precautions um, for patients in general that simply didn't exist beforehand. So the AIDS epidemic changed so many dimensions of the everyday practices of healthcare. Uh, We could look also at the SARS pandemic, um, which affect different parts of the world Mm -hmm. differently, that epidemics end and leave marks on the world in different ways in different places. So SARS in 2002, many Asian countries, for example, normalize the use of face masks. Right.
2: And one will certainly wonder whether that becomes the new normal here. Dr. Green, I appreciate your time tonight. That's Dr. Jeremy Green joining us tonight live from, from Baltimore. Here's what's coming up next tonight.
4: it's a crucial part of the great American economy. Daycare centers. Without them, it's hard for mom and dad to get to work. See what life will be like for them when they start opening the doors once again. Plus, the state seeing the highest rates of infection since restarting the economy. And our nightly look at restaurants across the country still cooking. Before the break, images from around the world on day 135 of the coronavirus crisis.
2: Majority of states are now open in some form, but some of the earlier states to open now showing sharp increases in infections. South Carolina and Iowa both showing new cases rising more than 70 percent since reopening. Remember, though, testing has also increased. In Minnesota, cases have more than tripled since its April 27th reopening. Testing there doubling. Well, as companies think about bringing employees back, parents with young children need daycare centers to open as well. Tom Wyatt is the CEO of KinderCare Education, one of the largest early education and child care companies in the country. Mr. Wyatt, it's good to have you on the program tonight. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. What is the status of your facilities right now?
9: Well, today we have around six. We have 1500 facilities around the country in total. Uh, Right now, around 600 of them are open. Uh, We had 450 open during the first uh, seven weeks really serving the essential workers, which we were very proud to do. Uh, but as states have opened uh, last week and then again this week, uh, we have opened uh, in about 10 states. and Next week, we'll open an additional 15 states. So we're, we're starting to, to expand out.
2: Many parents uh, are, are obviously going to need your services. I'm. How are you thinking about this issue of businesses reopening and, and getting back to work and whether you can be ready to serve them?
9: Well, because of the 450 that we had open during the uh, the height of the pandemic, if you will, uh, we learned a lot. We learned we worked closely with CDC. Uh, we built in obviously new safety uh, protocols, health protocols. Uh, we've been doing those consistently in those 450 centers uh, since the week of the 23rd of March. Uh, and as we begin to bring on the new uh, centers and new states as we go forward. We will use the, if you will, lessons learned, uh, social distancing, uh, frequent hand washing, uh, asking parents to drop their child off uh, at the front of the center and not go back to the classroom. We'll take the child back. So we're trying to do our best to get as uh, few people going through the center other than, quite frankly, the teacher and the child. Yeah.
2: How are you dealing with the issue of, of masks, um, liability if, if children do get sick at your facilities? How are you thinking about all of that?
9: Well, start with the mask we all of our uh, staff in a center must is required to wear a mask. We also have PPE and we wear gloves, uh, especially the cook and the others that are uh, involved with the food so all that 's done in that way uh, for for anyone that were to contract uh, the virus or we learn that they 've contracted it uh, either before or after they 've been in the schoolroom or, or in the classroom or or through the center. Uh, We shut down that center uh, for at least 72 hours. uh, And we obviously sanitize the center. uh, And then at that point in time, we decide if it's safe to bring everyone else back. Uh, And any, of course, any teachers that come in contact with that child, should it be a child or could be a a teacher, uh, they are obviously quarantined as well.
2: Sounds like a funny question to ask, but do children have to wear masks?
9: That's not a funny question to ask. There are some states that started out saying they wanted children even three years old wearing a mask. And it's it's simply impossible. Uh, They take them off. They're they're quite frankly a bit of a choking hazard. Uh, So, no, the children do not wear masks.
2: Tom Wyatt, we wish you well. Thank you for being on tonight with us.
9: My pleasure. Take care.
2: Tom the CEO of KinderCare. Next tonight, a coffee shop owner with 19 locations on what this crisis is like for him in his own words. Plus, our nightly list of restaurants that are. Still serving. Do that next. Welcome back. Dan Rice uh, runs Dollop Coffee Company in Chicago. What it's like to be closed for two months, in his own words.
11: The spirit that it takes to be like a small business person, to be aggressive, to grow your company, it's no different. It has to be applied now. I own and operate Dollar Coffee Company in Chicago. We roast our own coffee, and we have a a wholesale bakery as well. I don't know that I'll be able to keep up with all my locations. I don't know. I don't know. I really hope we can. It's just figuring out what's next. What are customers going to want? How much space do I leave at the register? Which shop do I open first? What can I afford and rent? Who can I pay next? It's problem solving. My biggest concern is that when we open, it won't be what it, what it needs to be in certain terms of revenue to support your your business. I don't feel like the PPP program was botched. I just feel like the demand's overwhelming. So I'm still waiting. Long story short, I'm still waiting, just like most people are, for, for round two to happen now. We have to find silver linings in all of this. It's been adorable being home going for walks with the kids. We have twin 15-month-olds. So I've actually, i got to see him walk for the first time. I wouldn't have been home for that. At least I've been able to be in this purgatory in in good company.
2: And that was Dan Weiss in his own words tonight. We've heard from many restaurateurs about their businesses, which are struggling tremendously, as we all know. We do want to hear from you about your favorite restaurants that are delivering or doing takeout. Tweet me at my Twitter handle, at Scott Wapner CNBC. Please use the hashtag... Thanks for the grub, and we're going to try and read the name of your restaurant on the air at the end of this show each and every night. Can't vouch for the food or the place or even the management, but I can definitely vouch for my commitment to save our small businesses. So here we go tonight. Verona Italian restaurant serving curbside in Conway, Arkansas. The Porter Pub on Pine Street, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. 110 Grill, Manchester, New Hampshire, West 29th Restaurant in Wheat Ridge, Colorado, and the Wine Cellar in Jacksonville, Florida. It does it for us. I'll see you tomorrow. Shark Tank is next.
8: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.